0: This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit gbt.com to learn more.
1: All right, warriors. We are back with another guest for another great episode. And 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 man, Dr. Mike. When I tell you this guy is um, somebody who regularly changes the way that I think about sickle cell disease, I don't find that many people like that. So so I I find myself chasing after this guest from time to time, desperate for a for a dose. You guys meet up in clubhouse Dr. Z? You know, we meet up in clubhouse pretty frequently actually, but that's not where we first met. So we've got we've got the professor with us today man. We've got we've got Phil Philip Okwo. I call him Phil. Phil, Philip, do you have a preference man? I always wonder that about Philip.
0: Dr. Z, I'm easy. I can go with Phil or Philip. I, I usually will see me present as Phil just so folks know that there's two L's because it's really easy to gloss over when it's seen visually as Philip. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I go by either.
1: All right, beautiful, man. Well, welcome to Cheat Codes a Sickle Cell Podcast, man. And we are just thrilled to have you on.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I first met Phil at a town hall for priapism. I met a bunch of really, really awesome male advocates. But, uh, you know, the way you were speaking on the topic... And the way you were speaking about sickle cell disease, it really caught my attention. You know, like I've said, I've tried to align myself with you as much as possible from that point forward. I want to hear a little bit about your journey, man. What, has what, 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 your journey been with sickle cell disease? How did you get to this point? What? Tell us a little bit about your, your early childhood, college years. Give us a little insight into who Philip Okwo is.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, I guess a quick introduction, Phil Okwo. I'm 38 years, no, 39, sorry, <laughs> 39 years old, beta sickle, zero thalassemia. And uh, I'm a dad of two, finance manager, but I'm, you know, vocationally, I'm a, a, a warrior patient advocate. And um, I love to talk about and spread awareness for sickle cell. And my journey with sickle cell has, it's been an interesting one. I would say I've been very, very blessed both in uh, the severity of of my condition and in the the resources and the support system that I've had around it. Um, I was actually born in the UK, um, Wakefield near Manchester and uh, was diagnosed shortly thereafter, roughly about six months uh, of age, I think when I had my first crisis and was diagnosed as um, having sickle cell which was a shock. My dad was a doctor at the time. He's an OB-GYN getting his, doing his residency in the UK. You know That totally blew their mind, but I think there wasn't quite as much awareness about the genotypes and trying to plan for that. But um, I am the first of three. So I have a sister and brother who, who are both, um, um, I'm the only one with sickle cell. And we moved to the U.S. when I was five, right after my brother was born. And um, it was in the U.S. that I first, when we moved to Los Angeles, that I first got, um, I think, my my first big support system, which was uh, the Sickle Cell Disease Foundation in California. And they're a community-based organization that, um, you know, they had like a camp for for folks with sickle cell. And that was huge and very formative for me and just my development of my awareness of the condition, but also just general self-efficacy and understanding that you can do normal things like go to summer camps and do the swimming and the horseback riding and the archery and all the things, right? Um, you just may have to do it a little bit differently. You have to move differently. And that that experience from such a young age, from age six, when I first started as a camper uh, age when I aged out, but came back as soon as they would have me to serve as a counselor and as a volunteer, really helped to inform my approach to sickle cell as something that, yes. Um, I have sickle cell, but no, sickle cell does not have me. It is not the defining dimension of who I am and what I'm about and what I can do. Because of that and because I felt this tremendous sense of community, I've considered it always a labor of love to kind of continue to give back to folks behind me and to show them examples of what you can see and what you can achieve, what you can be despite the diagnosis. Um, And so that's a bit of my journey.
1: My favorite story about you is the one you tell me, and I could hear it a million times, but I feel like Dr. Mike and everybody else who's listening to this needs to hear it. Tell us a story about the time you went to China. (laughs)
0: All right. So I traveled to China not long ago for work. Um, And so I was in a finance manager role with a global finance manager role with uh, maybe 40% of our business was based in China. So I had to travel there for work. And I had some of the normal anxieties, for one, about a trip of that length. It was not my first international trip, but I was going to a place where I wasn't necessarily aware of how much awareness they would have of sickle cell, obviously a potential language bearer, as I speak no Chinese whatsoever. All of those concerns and anxieties were were there and very real. I I very much went with kind of just an open eye and heart for both the the people, my colleagues who I worked with, and the culture. Um, It was a whirlwind trip. And while I was there, I learned that the Chinese character for Crisis is apparently the same as the Chinese character for Opportunity, or at least they're somewhat synonymous. And I thought that that was very, very interesting because even though I'm here, this is an amazing experience. But in the back of my mind, I have these non-anxieties about my sickle cell and what will happen if I have a crisis here. And it really helped me kind of put things in perspective. As much anxiety as we have about crises with our sickle cell, basal occlusive crises specifically, they often present themselves as opportunities if we are if we are prepared and are viewed with the right perspective and the right mindset. And so I've tried to to approach every Crisis dilemma, you know, the pandemic, job loss, divorce, and or custody is kind of with this mindset. Like, what is the opportunity? What can be learned? What can be derived from this? And um, it's, I guess, just training yourself to see the silver lining in 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 the cloud.
1: I love that so much. I, I got to say, man, one of the things about sickle cell that's really tough for me as a pediatric doc is connecting with the boys between the ages of sort of eleven and eighteen. It's not easy, right? Because forget sickle cell disease, just connecting with guys that age, you're never cool enough, right? And and certainly now as their sickle cell doctor, I'm not cool enough to be someone they want to hang out with, right? Or talk to. This advocacy space is filled with a lot of really, really good advocates, a lot of effective advocates. There's something different about advocacy from the male perspective, though. And, and you do a lot of that, right? With the podcast. So, You've got a podcast called Blood Brothers, um, which is is really good. People should go listen to that. I want to hear a little bit about that sort of perspective from a male advocacy standpoint in the sickle
0: cell disease space and your approach. Yes, absolutely. And this is something I'm especially passionate about because, as you know uh, and are well aware of more than anyone else, transition from pediatric care to adult care is such a pain point. For the sickle cell community at large, our mortality spikes are really unacceptable as pertains to to that stage of development. And so, in a lot of the mentorship that I've done, um, particularly with with young men with sickle cell, that age that that coming of age has been a challenge because I mean this is something I think for for everyone, every parent can attest to the the, the difficulties of. Kind of adolescence, right? Every probably every adult can can attest to that. And so this is why when I spoke of you know my experiences with camp and a support group and what I call a tribe, right? This sense of being a warrior, but knowing that there are people who are dealing with what you are dealing with and are in your peer group, it is so fundamental. And so I think. That from this age of eleven to eighteen, it is. I say it this way. I say in, in in the same way that it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a tribe to sustain a warrior. And so we know that developmentally speaking, as far as children, you know, from when child development, there's a locus of attachment where they're looking to their adults, you know, up to a certain age, and then they start looking out to their peers. And so I think that actually represents a lot of some of the challenges that comes with helping facilitate a smooth transition because from the ages of 11 to 18, it's really difficult to confront your diagnosis and how you may have to move differently because all you want to do is be normal. You just want to be like one of the guys, right? And so having to navigate that Without a tribe, it's already very alienating, particularly if you, like me, are the only person in your family to have sickle cell. And so having a context, a group of guys, a peer peer set, a tribe, where you can kind of progress through this in a way where almost, you know, you can almost couple it with certain rites of passage, right? Like learning to drive a car or whatever the case may be. I think the camp setting is probably the most ideal for that because there's so many rich experiences you'll have in a camp, but I think that knowing that aspect of child development would might be advantageous to try to perhaps accelerate the, the transition age a little bit, and obviously it should be piecemeal and stage-wise and congruent with one's maturity, but that is something that I think within the context of the tribe and leading by example is really the best way to kind of advocate for that age group.
1: I love that, man. But now when we're talking about the tribe and you're talking about members of that tribe, in a perfect situation, who do you envision being as part of that tribe to be effective? Are we talking family members? Are we talking peers? Are we talking healthcare workers? Like what what does it
0: take? It's all of it. By default, your family is going to be your tribe, right? And in a setting where if you're like me, I'm the only person in my family with sickle cell, that is well and good up to a point right? There's only so much that, I mean, as much as my family will sympathize for me and with my being in pain, they can't ever really understand it. So I will get a certain degree of support and it is integral. It is absolutely fundamental, but that only goes so far because ultimately what will happen as I enter that kind of early adulthood, I'm going to start reckoning with who I am and my place in the world, right? And what that means. And so as I'm going to be challenging some of the traditions and norms I've learned in my household, um, I'm going to also be running it up against who I am and what are my capabilities as, as a warrior, as somebody dealing with this condition. And so that's where the tribe of other people, um, whether it's in a camp setting or not, maybe it's through a community-based organization that you have locally that has sickle cell, it will it behooves. Young warriors to have relationships with people who can't just sympathize with what they're going through, but can empathize. Helps surmount some of those challenges together.
2: So you you said when you were like five, you moved to California. You got hooked up with this organization. They sent you to camp. Did did you seek that out? Did they come to you? Was your mom like, because we get this a lot? He's not ready for that. I don't want to send him off on his own. Mom's let him go. Let him go. I you know I've been involved in camp for twenty years, and I see this where you have, uh, you know, people who were campers, they become counselors at the camp. They, you know, come back and work at the camp and they're they're still friends with all the people they knew from camp. They're standing up in each other's weddings. They're, you know, giving each other jobs. And I mean, really they do build a community around camp. You know, Dr. Z has been going up to sickle cell camp the last five years and uh, we're getting more and more participation there. But I think this community building is so important. I love it. And I I think there's a lot I'm going to crudely pivot here. I think there's a lot of things, too. You know, you you talked about you got this tribe and you got your parents involved, but there's things you're not going to talk to your parents about. There's things you might even be shy to talk to your doctor about. But they come up and you can talk to them. You you know, maybe you're at camp and somebody's got some mental health issues and you think, you know what, I deal with that, too. And now it's, it's an open thing that you can talk about. There's so many powerful things about having that big, team around you.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Mike, Dr. Mike, you're, you're exactly right about it. And, and I just want to put this in there. You know, my first experience in camp that, I mean, touched me to my core, Phil, you know, like really just, I mean, made me understand sickle cell disease a little differently. It was the first night at camp and kids with sickle cell disease have nighttime bedwetting, right? That is a completely normal thing. In sickle
0: cell disease. I had it until I was almost 16.
1: Yeah, but it's so debilitating to the individual who's going through it by themselves in their home as the only one, right? But like suddenly that boy's cabin, there's nighttime bedwetting and it's like, all right, man, like, whatever, you know, like that, it was just a completely different, just a different feeling, just a different, that, that type of, I get that tribe. It's such a silly way to think about it, but that tribe feeling right there in that moment was so clear to me. Like these guys understand each other better than even sometimes their families understand them.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because I think again, that setting of the tribe is where you learn that it's okay not to be okay sometimes. And, and this is, it's, it's interesting because I recall as um, my mom trying to comfort me with the bedwetting thing and saying like, you know, this was something that, that she did and, and not knowing, you know, if this was just something she was saying to make me feel better or to, you know, so to go to a camp and to see it um, and to be like, okay, well, this is normal. And so this, this isn't something you have to, you live in your head, you live in your head and you kind of agonize more than perhaps you may ever vocalize. And so that can become, it can really tear you down. And so again, to see that in the context of the tribe is, is such a, is so important and it's so vital because then it gives you, it helps reset what the window of normal is. That's powerful because then you can see, all right, it's different. You just have to deal with it. Again, you move differently and, you know, but doesn't have to stop you from living your life it doesn't have to stop you from having a good time and i think something you said dr c as far as that camp experience and how you do build a community that kind of travels with you throughout life it is it's so true, um, and yes, on Clubhouse, I'm still in touch with with folks that I camped with. I'm still in touch, for example, with Mary Brown, the camp director, for, uh, sickle- and CEO of Sickle Cell Disease Foundation of California. So vital, those relationships, um, even through the pandemic, checking in, collaborating with them on projects like the documentary, like the podcast and even as you progress through the different stages of adulthood, right. Um, my peer set, uh, as a father and as a new husband, you know, I have other warriors who, for whom dealing with those life challenges and dealing with with the, the realities of our sickle cell and those, those complications and managing them is something that I, I thank God for because you always want to play those roles and do them with justice, right? you, you want to give them the, the treatment and the seriousness that they deserve, and you always wonder the ways in which your condition may undermine your ability to do that. And so Blood Brothers was very much born out of those kind of conversations. That podcast was born out of the tribe of, of male warriors sharing our perspectives and dealing with these things, what it means to be an adult with sickle cell. Adulting is hard in general, whether you have sickle cell or not, but you know, tying it all together and, and making something beautiful out of
1: it. You know, you said something earlier that I want to just circle back to. You talked about you want to be one of the boys growing up. As a sickle cell warrior, how many times did you feel like not one of the boys because of sickle cell disease? Like, what is the scope of that? You know, like, is that something that happens once a month? Is that something that happens every single day?
0: This is a great question. Um, I was having a great talk with another warrior uh, in the advocate space, Heather Avant, um, who's originally- Yeah, from I love her. her. She's love the her. best. And we, she and I commiserate over this concept of kind of masking. And, and masking is essentially this idea of how we don't necessarily reveal the, the full expression of the pain we might be feeling because we kind of just want to be normal or you kind of just want to fit in. And um, there's already this element, I guess as a male with sickle cell of you're a male with sickle cell, but you're a male. So you're socialized to suck it up, walk things off, to not show pain, to not show that vulnerability. And so that's already a kind of a current. But then in the context of your friendships, even in the context of your family life, you often tend to tie that socialization to this expression, this behavior of kind of suffering in silence because you don't wanna be the one in your peer set where you're out, you're having, and you're, it's your pain or your crisis that is killing the vibe, so to speak, or you know, um, raining on the parade or, or whatever. And there were times for me growing up where even in the context of my family, knowing that if, if I were to be in crisis and have to stay home from school, that would very much mean that one of my parents would have to, you know, miss out on a day's wage, right. To stay home with me. And so a lot of times you, we put a pressure on ourselves to maybe not show your full cards, right. To not you know, fully open the kimono in terms of what you're feeling. And, to, and so as far as being one of the guys, it happens. It, it be, I mean, it, I would say in a, in direct proportion to the amount of sickle up. Self- crisis pain you may be feeling, because again, you don't want to be that guy who, is, who takes whatever good times the group is having and makes it a downer. And at the same time, you have to reconcile that with fear of missing out. FOMO is a thing, right? And so um, so sometimes this masking thing is something that it can be a 24-7 thing. And it's very exhausting. I've heard of actually cases of uh, uh, Tourette's, I think, where people are, they're suppressing that kind of need uh, or impulse to, you know, how, you know, the, the pathology of Tourette's and how it manifests. And it can, it, it is like in and of itself, almost like its own job, right? And so then to bring that into the context of trying to manage a household or to bring that into the context of being a father of children, you know, it just adds a whole layer of exhaustion to that whole experience. So yeah, it, it is something that, and unless one becomes comfortable. In being vulnerable in that regard and in kind of bucking some of the ways in which we're socialized, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve, being vulnerable in that way, it's something that it can just, it can consume your life.
1: That's powerful. I think about often the caregiver, right? For sickle cell disease. And really for most people, once you become an adult, you're your caregiver. So you're right. It's a full-time job to take care of yourself. How do you talk to your kids about sickle cell disease? Do they know about your struggle? Do you mask it from them too? Do you try to protect them from the struggle?
0: Well, my kids are still young. My son is five, my daughter's two. And uh, fortunately, the past couple of years, I have not been particularly symptomatic. The only two times where I was since 2016, I happened to be in Houston for travel. So my, my kids didn't have to see that. And so the question of how do I... How do I talk to them about it? At the moment, I try to just continue to have conversations like this. I know there will be a point where they're old enough to you know, to not only be an earshot, but to understand. But also it puts a, a greater fire under me in terms of this advocacy work because I think a thing that tends to happen, particularly with the way the newborn screening happens and the reporting of, oh, your, your child has the trait and kind of it's like, oh, you don't have to worry about it and you never have to think about it again does the community a disservice because you get people with the trait who grow up not really engaging or understanding the seriousness or the potential repercussions and then having a child with sickle cell and then having to learn from scratch. And I would hate for my children who both have the trait to ever be concerned with that, uh, you know, to, to essentially they as carriers will always have the potential to have their own children who might have sickle cell. And I would hate for them if that were to happen them to essentially start from scratch. I feel like I would do them a great disservice if that were the case. And so for me, it's so important to not act as though sickle cell is not a thing that they have to know about, right? And even though I've been very lucky in terms of compared to my peers, how little I end up having to be in the hospital, it's still incumbent upon me to ensure that they, they have that awareness, they know what it is. And so my intention is to continue doing, doing what I do having the conversations that I have and to just make sure they're a part of as much of it as they can be. And so I've had, I've done events here with the Sickle Cell Foundation of Georgia and brought them, you know, taking them to it. They have like family day and things like that. And it's an opportunity to just for one, be a part of the community in, in a fun way, but eventually the education will come, you know, so spoonful of sugar with the medicine as it were.
2: I think something that we were just touching on a minute ago is so important and it's going to be just obvious to people who have chronic disease, but I think it's not obvious to anyone else. And that is, you know, when you think of a disease, like you think of sickle cell, you think of pain episodes, or you think of acute chests, or you think of, you know, needing to take medicines or, or things like that. And you think about these specific, you know, I'm going to miss this game or I can't be part of football. But I think the thing that gets missed is the stress of, even when things are good, what do I have to do? Could this all just come down right now because my sickle cell you know acts up? You know, do I have to lower my expectations? I can't do that. Do I have to avoid this activity that I would love to do, but I know I could get me in trouble. And just sort of the, the just constant uh, pressure of all of that and the you know frustration of all of that, even if things are going well, I mean, even if you're not having pain episodes, you're taking your medicine, you're taking good care of yourself that worry is always there, that, you know, thing is hanging over you. And I think that's something people don't appreciate about chronic diseases. And And I think it's really why we need a cure, especially in sickle cell.
0: Absolutely. That psychosocial component is so big. And I think, you know, I don't know if what readily, what answers are readily available as far as how to kind of incorporate that into the clinical experience. Um, you know, I, 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 I understand some, some, hospitals have you know kind of partnerships but it is such a it's very wide-reaching and so i'm i'm a huge proponent personally of you know therapy mental health i've been in some form of therapy since 2015 and that for me was actually quite it was kind of a blessed accident because i was in grad school at the time and it was a free resource available to students and so i i knew i had nothing to lose but i didn't know people who went to therapy not even so much that there was a stigma around it i just just wasn't something that was familiar. And I very quickly learned that, the, that what I was learning from therapy, first of all, I got my attention deficit diagnosis from that, which helped me better orient myself in my master's degree pursuit. But managing all of the adjustments that came with getting married, starting grad school, preparing for your son, while trying to pursue a career, while getting married, getting preparing to relocate to a new state for a job, and and you know, and all of the adjustments that come from that, it is so much, and I, I don't think I really appreciated how much of the kind of overhead or bandwidth that is is running in the background at any given moment in time, um, without getting a context from that from from therapy, and so a good mental mental health regimen and hygiene is so key, I think, to perpetuate that wellness. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you guys have seen the studies too about something to the effect, what is it, 32% of adults with sickle cell have some form of mental health issue like depression and or anxiety, and that ultimately the physical health complications are much more severe when that is the case. And so what are we doing? How are we integrating mental health into our, our, you know, our medical, physical health um, outcomes. I think we, we need to do a much better job of that. And that's a, such a great point you raised, Dr. C.
1: So a couple things. So the first thing is you talked about your father being an OBGYN. Was it help, helpful or harmful to have a physician in the house?
0: I think on the one hand, it was good because it gave, there came with it a certain health literacy, right? And to just be able to navigate the healthcare space, it gave me kind of maybe a fluency and a vocabulary um, as far as my engagements with my doctors, there was a point before I graduated high school where he was concerned with you know how I was developing. and that part, I think that part could have been done better. Uh, but on balance, I think it was it was a positive because he had at least that that kind of background and I think that inclination towards a bedside manner to being uh, sympathetic in a way that I've often heard that fathers of warriors may not be sometimes, particularly with male warriors, sometimes they're they're harder and tougher and they expect, you know, they have an expectation of you need to overcome this, that sometimes it just isn't realistic. And so I'm grateful for my dad in the way he was um, his kind of example and his understanding towards the condition. But I think in as I've become an adult, he has perhaps had a more of a challenge coming to terms with my diagnosis than I have. He's been almost you know, and it's often the case, a lot of times it's your loved ones who push you towards some of these exploring some of these curative therapies uh, and the like that, um, you know, just see what it's about and bone marrow transplant and, and um, stem cell. And those things are very much on the table, in as much as, you know, I'm not ruled out by my age. Whatever plays out in that regard, I've very much made peace and come to terms with my identity as somebody who has sickle cell. And it's not maybe because I've had such, such success in managing it, I'm not kind of so driven to try to figure out how to eradicate it at all costs, right? And it's interesting to me what seems to be his obsession with that, but I know that ultimately it comes from a good place. But sometimes he doesn't always hear that. You know, I'm okay, whatever with whatever. Um, Whatever my lot is with my sickle cell.
1: Sometimes with my kids, you know, they they'll come to me like my tummy hurts, and I'll be like, "Oh, it's fine. You'll be okay. Don't worry about it." Yeah, I minimize them a lot. But I was thinking, like, if they had sickle cell disease, would I be would I be like hyper vigilant and hyper active and really just like look for every complication? That's why I was curious.
2: Yeah, I think it goes one way or the other. You're either. I think most most doctors as parents are like, uh, you know the cobbler's son who has no shoes. You know, you're like bringing your kid to the ER after his appendix burst because you were pretty sure it wasn't an appendicitis or something. But but, but you see some who are just hypervigilant.
0: I think dad was on that latter side, somewhat the hypervigilant side. I would say he was on somewhat the hypervigilant side, but it, it was only in certain particular situations that it was expressed more than others. I think he found a way to find it to have a good balance about it.
1: Were you his first family member with sickle cell disease?
0: Yeah, oh, well, I was his first child. I think he had a brother who passed away from sickle cell at a fairly young age, I think 19 or 20. But yeah, but I'm also his first, his first child, so. Right,
1: well, Phil, a couple more things. I know we're, we're getting close to our time here, man, and I wanna be respectful of your day. As sickle cell providers, I think about this often, and this is why I interface with warriors as much as I do. What are we doing wrong? What are doctors doing wrong? What, what, what is there, what is it about us right now that is not, we're not on the same vibe it feels like sometimes with patients. What do you think in your really mature take on sickle cell disease? What can we as providers do to bridge that gap a little more? And what could patients do uh, who may be listening to this to help bridge that
0: gap a little more?
1: You seem to have found a really good medium ground.
0: From the provider side, I think that understanding the constraints you guys are dealing with as far as your time and how able you are to interact with patients, it is trying to find a more integrative balance, both with um, some of the psychosocial ramifications, right? The mental health that we alluded to earlier. There, you know, again, some of those social work partnerships, looking at the whole person, the whole healthcare experience, as opposed to just the physical health. And my great kind of uh, regret, I guess, in the way healthcare is practiced in the United States in general, I think on all levels, not just sickle cell, is that it's it's far too reactive. It's not sufficiently proactive. So when I consult with my, my doctor about what is it I can be doing nutrition-wise uh, to help ensure that I have better outcomes with my sickle cell. I understand that for one, there's the constraints on time to really be able to get into that. I would hope that with people like with sickle cell and other chronic illnesses, there would be a much better handoff or way to facilitate some of these other concerns that would allow for better integration of care and continuity of care across different um, medical systems, which is another thing with sickle cell because oftentimes if you're in crisis, you may not always be able to go to the same hospital and so having that, that continuity, that visibility across the different um, electronic records is, is maybe that's more of a technologist question than one for the providers, but I think there could be better perhaps metadata to kind of chart out how that all flows together and how, how one is trending over time across all these different institutions. The, the opportunities that I see amongst the patient community are stem from this what I alluded to in terms of this sense of self-efficacy within your condition that yes you have this diagnosis but you are not necessarily a victim to it or of it and so assuming a greater degree of agency in your care um, I think as a patient I try to approach my my sittings with my doctor. I don't allow my my doctor to be to kind of passively and in a one one unidirectional way, tell me, okay, you know, take my vitals and tell me what's going on or whatever. Like I usually show up to my doctor's appointments with as many questions from my doctor as as my doctor has for me, you know, for example, as was the case with my uh, when a doctor hematologist in Los Angeles prescribed hydroxyurea for me, there was a conversation, it wasn't just, okay, I'm going to do this. And this is going to be it we kind of went back and forth. We sat down and we reviewed long-term studies. We talked about the fact that I was you know, planning a family and my wife was expecting. And um, we looked at how, how regularly I was going to the hospital. And we ultimately decided that for me um, and the level of risk that I was currently at, that there may not be um, sufficient benefit for me to start hydroxyurea. So I have to approach that interaction as though, yes, my doctor, he's an expert on all things medical, but I have to take agency for the fact that I'm a I'm an expert with what's going on with my health, what's going on in my life. And I have to be able to bring those concerns and have a have a dialogue with the doctor in a way that I'm not intimidated or that I'm not going to kind of, you know, I have to be willing to express everything that is on the table um, to ensure that I get the the best outcome from from my doctor. And I think just being being diligent and compliant with everything your doctor is asking you to do in the sense of, you know, how how regularly you, you are seeing them. I really do approach it almost like it's like a business. It's like a board meeting. It's like a quarterly. I'm seeing either my primary care physician or I'm seeing my hematologist. And so I, I approach it as business. Like, what do we want to accomplish? What are, what are my goals? And, you know, I'm looking for that specialist input from my doctor or the other provider, especially. So
2: you come in with like a list today I want to talk about this and then the second half of the meeting will address
0: this it kind of just flows but yeah i mean when i i i know what my what my concerns are and you know right now obviously there's a lot of stuff around covid and there's a lot of stuff around vaccines and and so it's having a list but then it's also being able to have this dialectic where you can then there are certain things that may not be on my mind but as we have the conversation it's you know I can, I can then flow into that. And if I again, if, I, if something doesn't occur to me right away, having the rapport with your, your, your provider to follow up with an email or a phone call afterwards, uh, but I think once you set that tone and once you demonstrate to your provider that you're serious in that way, I've always found them to be, you know quite responsive and willing to, to, to join that level. And so um, so it really does start with what you demonstrate when you, when you walk into that,
1: that's a great piece of wisdom. Um, and and you're always dropping these little pieces of wisdom, man. That's why we,
2: we definitely have to have you back on this podcast.
0: I can't wait.
1: All right, man. I appreciate the love. Listen, keep your, keep an eye out for the next invite in your inbox, man. It's coming soon. This was an amazing hour with you. And I I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this with us. Um, you, you make us better physicians. And for that, we appreciate you.
2: And blood brothers podcast it's on spotify itunes all those things
0: it is it is on it's on spotify it's on itunes and uh all the places all the places but also um i'll be linking it to my uh to my instagram so if folks want to follow scd warrior one um on instagram definitely jump on there
1: sounds great phil all right warriors there you have it professor phil
2: Cheat Codes is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for sponsoring today's episode and serving the sickle cell community.
1: All right, warriors, here we go with an educational segment, word of the day segment with Dr. C, who he's kind of like my, he's like my master splinter. I think you're like the master splinter to my teenage mutant ninja turtle. How do you feel about that?
2: Puzzled, because I don't watch Teenage Mutant Ninja
1: Turtles, but my kids do, so I'll figure out who Mr. Splinter is. Uh, uh, Splinter. Oh. Splinter. And he's a master, not a mister. Okay. But please find it and watch it tonight. This is a great educational segment for you. The word of the day, though, Dr. C, is um, something you're pretty familiar with, man. It's something that we get in blood work on every single patient. Uh, And sometimes they may not know that it's part of their blood work. But this is a value that helps us identify red blood cells in, in a very broad way. It helps us identify and classify them in a really broad way, the broadest way possible, really. It describes their physical appearance. It describes a physical sort of trait of the red blood cell. But it changes the way doctors think. What am I talking about? That's a tough one, Dr. Z. This was a tough puzzle, but I think you're talking about, it's not even a word, MCV? MCV, the mean corpuscular volume. Right. So mean is average
2: and uh, corpuscular is um, like a, a cell, like a corpuscle and volume is like how much how much stuff is in there, so like a volume of, uh, of a soda might be 20 ounces or a half liter or 12 ounces. So, this is the average volume of the cell, and here we're specifically talking about the red blood cells that's where we, we talk about this MCV and mean corpuscular volume is a mouthful, so we go with MCV, we shorten it. And it, it has a lot of value to us. So it's the average size of the red blood cell. And that can get changed by a lot of different things. And, and usually has to do with um, making hemoglobin. So if you get really low in iron and you're not making hemoglobin well, you'll start making smaller cells. So your MCB will go down. Same is true if you have uh, a thalassemia trait. If you uh, have one of your uh, genes for the, the alphas or the beta globins, uh, doesn't work. You're not making as many, as many of those parts. So you make less hemoglobin in each cell. So the MCV is smaller. And we see that in some of our warriors. So if you have uh, sickle cell beta thalassemia, zero or plus, then you'll have a low MCV because that beta thalassemia gene makes it. So you're not making as much uh, hemoglobin. Or sometimes you might have SS, which usually has a normal MCV, but you have alpha thalassemia also, so then you might have a, a little bit small
1: cells and have a low MCV. But I guess the question is, does it even matter?
2: It does in some ways. So in one, it helps us, uh, you know, make a diagnosis. It helps us identify, do do you have a problem making hemoglobin? So, you know, it might be that we're picking up that you're iron deficient, not usually in sickle cell, but it might also be that you have a, a thalassemia, which can affect sickle cell, can affect phenotype that we talked about before, you know, how your sickle cell expresses itself. So um, if you have a, a little bit low MCV and you're not making a ton of red blood cells, more than normal, but not a ton more, then we'd say, oh, this looks like SC disease and probably your hemoglobin is 9 or 10. So just by looking at those few numbers, we can figure out what kind of sickle cell you have. It also is used in a lot of cases to look at how well you're taking your hydroxyurea and how well it's working. So um, when you take hydroxyurea and the cells start to make fetal hemoglobin, um, it slows down how quickly they divide a little bit. So each cell winds up with more hemoglobin in it and bigger and better hydrated. And so you can have a, a large MCV. So normal might be 80 to
0: 95
2: normal for somebody with S beta zero thalassemia might be 60, 65 with SC, it might be 70, 72.
1: So normal is relative.
2: Yeah. Normal, normal depends on, you know, normal for you. Right. So if we take like just a group of people at random out of the population, most of them will be between about 80 and 95. But if we took a whole group of people with beta thalassemia trait, they might be you know, in the 60s. We, we use it, uh, make a diagnosis sometimes, and then we use it a lot to monitor your hydroxyurea therapy. So if you're SS patient, you usually have a normal MCV, we use maybe 80, 85. If you go on hydroxyurea, we'll often see that go up to 100, 110, sometimes 115, 120 even. So that's uh, something we look for it can also get affected by vitamins and minerals. So, you know, we talked about if your iron's low, you're not making hemoglobin. Well, um, you can get a low MCV. There's a couple of vitamins at folate and, and B12 that if you get deficient and the cells can't divide as well, you can't make DNA as well. And the cells wind up being bigger. And so you could have a high MCB. Um, so MCV is something that we can use to make a diagnosis, track therapy And and we might say that when you come to an appointment, hey, your MCV was 99 today. Maybe we need to adjust your hydroxyurea dose. You gained a little weight and the MCV is coming down a little bit. Um, And often we have that back before
1: we have your fetal hemoglobin because it comes right off that blood counter machine. I love that. So let's rapid fire a summary. I'm going to say something and you tell me if it changes your MCV. Sickle cell trait. No, Normal, normal MCV. Okay, so normal MCV. Okay, C trait. A little bit. Beta thaltrate. Low. Alpha thaltrate. So,
2: alpha thaltrate comes in a spectrum. If you're a, a silent carrier, you just have one, we usually say your silent carrier, no effect. If you have two, then usually
1: a little small. Three, pretty small, and we call that hemoglobin H. All right. Awesome. Well, there you have it, Warriors. Dr. C breaking it down as he only can. Thanks, Dr. Callahan. Thank you, Dr. Z. MCB.
2: So this is my favorite segment. It's how I keep up with what's going on in the world. It's when Doctor Z tells us uh, what's happening in his clubhouse chats and his Twitter, and what's going on on the internet. So uh, what's happening, Doctor Z?
1: Man, a lot is going on. There's so much to talk about, and there's so many ways to talk. I'm loving it, man. Um, You know, I know we've been joking around about this clubhouse thing, and I know just a few weeks ago I told you it was at a million users. We're at six million users as of yesterday. This thing is this thing is going nowhere. And like five million of them are you. <laughs> so I feel like this app has allowed me to touch down with sickle cell warriors, just like be just kind of be dropped into the, the situation they're in, and be able to take it in. And I've learned a lot of things, man. I we spend so little time studying sickle cell disease uh, as trainees that when you, when you really think about it, what your expertise in sickle cell disease is really a function of your patients and what they tell you and what happens to them. For
2: sure. I mean, I think that's true of most things, but sickle cell being a rare disease, people in general aren't going to have a huge experience. And as sickle cell docs, we get a little bit of experience, but, uh, still it's, it's not every day. It's not going to the grocery store with sickle cell disease. It's what we see in clinic. And, you know, I think as you get older, you see more and more stuff, but I I think what you're doing, getting out into the spaces where we usually don't get to interact with people, I I
1: think is really valuable. So I've been learning a lot about, you know, just talking to different people from all over the world in a way that I, I wouldn't have before. Right. I've left the confines of Detroit and the United States And now I get to have conversations with patients in London and patients in Ghana. And I'm talking to patients in the Middle East. And I'm learning about how successful Dr. Step, we got a new doctor worldwide. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Estep better be worried. I just feel like I've learned so much by listening to their life experiences because a lot of their life experience really depends on their location right? Your life experience with sickle cell disease, the way we approach it is very American centric. But we know that even in America, the care you get in Detroit is different from the care you get in New York. It's different from the care you get in Idaho. It's different from the care you get in Utah, right? But that compounds even more across the global scale. So like talking to patients in London who are just upset about the fact that they have no new drugs to access, right the the way that their medical approach changes over there the the emphasis on transfusions there it's just really engaging it's been it's been really engaging for me uh, as a student so literally i go into these clubhouse rooms with sickle cell patients and they're all asking me questions and i'm kind of telling them like i'm not even here to talk i'm just here to listen i want to hear what what's happening with you guys i think in what's happening now in this segment one of the things that has come up a lot has been the again we've talked we've talked about this many times but it's been this angle of you know mistrust and distrust and the gap between providers and patients and and that's why the guest today Phil was was so important because he's one of those guys that is sort of really found a, a really good way to not only advocate for himself and identify what's important to him but also bring it to the attention of his physician I've really been struggling with, with certain individuals on this all-natural, holistic approach. You know me very well. I, I'm not against any of that. I'm not against somebody who thinks that it's reasonable to have some sea moss or have some even flow or use CBD, THC, zinc, alkaline water. I, I'm not the kind of physician that's going to poo-poo any of that. I'm not going to harass a patient for for believing in that what really bothers me though is this concept of all natural equals no side effects i you know
2: i I think like i'm 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 with you i try to be open-minded about these things you know some of them may work none of them have been properly tested and shown to work and that's a big that's a big difference right so You know, if you want to go on an all salad diet and you think it might help your sickle cell, I'll say, okay, go for it. You know, that sounds good. I mean, it doesn't sound that good. I'd like to have some steak or something, but it's okay. That's what you want to do. Do that. But I can't, you know, promise you it's going to help you with your sickle cell because, you know, nobody ever did a study and, and tried to show that it might make it better. It might make it worse. It might not do anything. You know, my uncle Tom called me the other day and he had some sort of. Probiotic thing he wanted to eat, and it was supposed to, they were, I don't know, they were bacteria pills or something. And he was it was going to make him lose weight, and uh, he said, "What do you think about this?" So I looked at it, and uh, it's probably not going to cause him any harm, but they haven't done anything to show that it would actually make him lose weight, except the fifty dollars in his wallet every month. So I, you know, I I think you know if if you want to try something, I think it's okay, but you should do it knowing that. Most of this stuff probably doesn't help. A lot of it is, is really just con artists trying to make money off of some garbage, but some of it might. So I'm not, you know, I'm going to be a little bit open-minded about it. But I think this point about natural is not equal to good or no side effects is really important because, you know, cyanide is natural. Snake venom is natural.
1: I mean, I mean, even e- e- even less uh, pathogenic, uh, peanuts Right. You could eat a peanut and die of anaphylactic shock. Right. That's natural. You, you could eat five bananas and get constipated. There's your side effect. Right. So, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that humans deserve the right to have free will and self-determination and make choices about what goes into their body and, and all of that. Um, we all
2: do. For sure. And I, and I mean, we're, we're advocates for our patients. We're um, hopefully educators and try to share knowledge with our patients. Um, we're advisors, you know, we've got some experience, we've seen some things and uh, we want to look at your situation and tell you what we, what we think might help. But at the end of the day, you know, people are autonomous and, and they can do
1: you know, what they want to do. All I'm saying is if I am talking about a new therapy or hydroxyurea or penicillin, the questions that you have for me about what are the side effects what happens like what what were the studies those are literally the exact same questions that you should be asking a holistic person and if they're telling you there are no side effects they are lying that is something that needs to be just so super clear ask them for side effects if someone is not willing to provide you with a list of side effects That should be a flag. You know, we've talked before
2: about how we determine what the side effects of a drug are. We do a clinical trial often with a placebo control arm. Because, you know, there was, I saw uh, a nice graphic on one of the internets and uh, they had this list of side effects and it was from the COVID vaccine. And it said, Would you take this? And then it said, Actually, this was the placebo arm. So, you know, and the people who were getting a shot of water, they were complaining about a whole lot of things to figure out what the side effects are of something. You really need to do a good study because, you know, you, you might have a headache. That's just a headache. But if 30% of the people getting this, you know, whatever herbal supplement are having a headache and only 10% of the placebo, then you say, you know what? The headache's probably from the herbal supplement. That's a side effect of the herbal supplement. But that's a problem with a lot of these things is nobody's doing that study. So even if the holistic person tells you the side effects, you want to know, how did you find that out? How many people have taken this? What are the results of the clinical trial? And I I think you'll hear crickets. Sometimes they'll say it's clinically proven. 13 patients took this and they said they felt better. It's not a clinical trial.
1: Well, that's what I've got for what's, what's happening now, man. Dr. Mike, I uh, I'm proud of this episode. I I think that we actually accomplished a lot. I think we unpacked a lot of things in this in this episode.
2: We had such a great guest on. We're gonna have to have uh, Phil Oakwell back on. He was uh, just such a such a bright guy, living well with sickle cell, so positive, you know, helping out helping out the community.
1: A lot of great ideas. This is definitely going to be one of many, many episodes with Phil, but warriors, we hope that, uh, we hope that you enjoy this episode and we really hope that you share this podcast with people you think could learn more about sickle cell disease. Go ahead and share it with your physician. Go ahead and walk into your appointment and say, Hey, do you know about this podcast by these two crazy hematologists, Dr. Z and Dr. C, you should go listen to it. Let them know, drop some knowledge on them too. And, uh, you know, keep living well with sickle cell, be safe. We'll be back. Right. Dr. C. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Peace.